Okay, I am excited this morning to share this with you. Sisters in Arms is a book that I happened to pick up when we were at the ABC um, oh, a few months ago, and it's um, about courageous women of the Reformation. Uh, as I began to read it, it just totally captivated my attention, and I have read it through two or three times now, and I could do more. You know, we are all familiar with the main men in the Reformation. You know, Luther, he was the monk who wanted to reform the church. He nailed his 95 theses to the door. Um, Zwingli was an associate of his who worked in Switzerland. He believed in the primacy of the Bible. William Tyndale was over in England, and he translated and printed the Bible in the English language, even though it was against the law, it was illegal, and he was executed for it. And there on the right is John Calvin. He was French. He was a French reformer. And then Gutenberg, down at the bottom, we don't necessarily think about him in the Reformation, but actually he was. Um, the first book off of the, his movable printing press was the Gutenberg Bible. And then when the Reformation came along, um, he printed their, you know, pamphlets were printed. And uh, the Reformation came about through sharing information, and that information was shared generally on pamphlets. This book is about eight very courageous women that made valuable contributions to the Reformation. All eight were noble women. Some were royalty, some were poor. They were all very literate. Some were highly educated, but all were changed by the Reformation, and they all loved the Lord, and they all made a positive stand. They were all dedicated to the Lord and to his service. There was a Charlotte, a Louise, a Katerina, two Catherines, a Margaret, a Marie, and an Olympia. We're going to look at two today. Katerina is first, and I've talked about her before, and then we'll talk about Marie. And hopefully we can hear some of the other stories another Sabbath. Katerina von Bora was German. She grew up in a German convent, and she was placed in the care of the nuns when she was five years old, just after the death of her mother and her father's remarriage. In other words, the new mother didn't want her, so send her off to the convent. Can you imagine how frightening? Can you think of that? You're five years old, your mom dies, and now you're off to a convent. I mean, that must have been a terrible thing to be removed from your home and thrust in that austere environment at that age. And after four years, her father transferred her to a different convent, and this is where um, two of her aunts were actually already cloistered there. Good thing about it. Katerina learned to read. She learned reading and writing and Latin, and then at 16, she took the vows of a nun. She really didn't have much choice. Her father didn't want her to come home, and there weren't very many options available for women in 1515. But over the next few years, Katerina and the other nuns heard rumors of grand things happening in Germany. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg to protest the selling of indulgences by the Catholic Church. Those were letters endorsed by the Pope that purportedly granted forgiveness of sins. Luther taught that forgiveness of sins came from grace alone as a free gift from God through faith alone, not mediated through the church, but directly by God. He also proclaimed that scripture alone should be the rule 
to which we give our allegiance. Luther's teachings spread like wildfire through all Europe, causing many monks and nuns to renounce their vows, and even the common people left the Catholic Church. His writings even found their way into her convent. Veronica, one of her nun friends, had an uncle named Wolfgang, who was a monk, and he was in charge of a monastery for monks. He sent her pamphlets and sermons by Martin Luther, who happened to be his very good friend. I guess the mother superior trusted anything that came from the monk, her uncle, because the letters and the pamphlets always arrived safely and unopened. Veronica, Katerina, and seven others met secretly at night in one of the girls' rooms to read and study these pamphlets. They would read what he had to say and get the Bible that they got in their library, and they would compare them. Sometimes their secret studies lasted all night, and they would yawn all the next day. But these nine began to understand that justification before God came through faith in Christ by his grace, and the church had nothing to do with it. After almost four years of study, they realized they could no longer in good conscience live in the convent and go through the motions of confession to a priest or perform penance for the remission of sins. But leaving was another matter. You couldn't just leave. As Katerina said, each particle of truth I have gleaned has been as sweet as honey in my mouth. But as for leaving the convent, that's a high price to pay. This is all I've ever known. I was gifted to the convent when I was five. I've grown up in the shelter of a cloister my whole life. Where would I go if I embraced this new doctrine openly? What would become of me? I would not know how to live out there. Would I marry? For no woman can remain unmarried in society. A woman who is not protected by the church needs the protection of a man. I cannot even begin to comprehend what life would be like outside these walls. Things have changed, haven't they? But that's the way it was then. Then the diet at Worms shocked everybody. Luther stood before the emperor and declared he would not listen to popes or councils because they often contradicted themselves. He told them his conscience was captive to the word of God alone. Now anyone foolish enough to follow him would be hunted and reviled like he was. That made things even harder. Katerina quit attending their little secret Bible studies. Fear kept her away. Night after night, she pled with God for guidance and help. She had never prayed this way before, but now she realized she had nowhere else to turn. God's word became precious to her, yet at the same time it was a great sword slashing at the cables that held her to the only anchor she had had all her life, the Roman Catholic Church. She finally realized she wasn't struggling to accept Luther's words, but the words of Jesus. It would cost her something to embrace these new teachings. She would have to leave her safe environment and face a hostile and alien world. Katerina thought about these things all the time, even while gardening. I'm like, I love this lady. (laughs) Prickly burrs, just like cockaburrs from the weeds, clung to her skirt. It made her realize she had to choose who she was going to stick to. Would it be Christ? Or would it be the safety of the convent? She couldn't have both. And Jesus won. 
One of the nine secretly contacted Luther. They wrote a letter. She wrote a letter, and she managed to get it out uh, with one of the workmen who came in, so it didn't go through the mother superior. And Luther arranged for the women to be smuggled out in a tradesman's wagon on the night before Easter, 1523. Those nine women rode for two days, each in a fetal position, each one in an empty, stinky herring barrel, a barrel that had had fish in it. You know how they smell. Well, after many hours, it's going to be worse. Maybe it sounds exciting in the de- you know, in the dark of night, but if captured, both those women and the tradesmen would all have been executed, for it was against the law to take nuns from a cloister. Luther and his associates placed the women with reformed families, or, you know, you might say Protestants, new believers, in Wittenberg, and gradually arranged, mar- arranged marriages for all but Katerina. She lived for two years with a family where she learned housekeeping, and she fell in one man, love with one man that they recommended, but he rejected her because she was not wealthy. Then they recommended that she marry this pastor who was 20 years our senior. She rejected him. Finally, she sent a message to Luther that she would only marry him or his associate. She was determined not just to marry the first available man, but a man that she respected. To everyone's surprise, the 42-year-old Luther agreed to marry 26-year-old Katie. The reformer said he married for several reasons. To make his father happy. You know, grandparents want grandkids. To rile the Pope to make the angels laugh, to make the devil weep, and to seal his testimony. And Esten, in essence, he was following Scripture, not the Catholic Church. Now there was no turning back. He made no mention of romantic love. In fact, one of his biographers suggested that he could have just as well have married a plank. But Katerina von Bora was anything but a plank. Truly, Luther had no idea what he was getting into. Luther's life changed dramatically after his marriage. Katie was a force to be reckoned with. She rose at 4 a.m. in the summer, 5 in the winter, to oversee the workings of their large home and farm. Luther jokingly dubbed her the Morning Star of Wittenberg. (laughs) She did most everything. She paid the bills. She gardened. She raised livestock. She drove a team. She ran the household, and we think this is horrendous, but she even brewed beer and wine for family use. And if you think about it, clean water was not easy to get back then, so there was a reason for that. And what a family they had. Luther and Katerina had six children and adopted 11 more. Plus, at any given time, university students, refugees, and homeless relatives lived with them. See, Luther lived in a former abbey. It had 40 rooms, and few of them were empty. She fed all those people. She cooked for them. She basically ran a household, a hostel, and also a hospital. She was called to provide care for the sick and to support her husband through his ailments, both physical and spiritual, She felt that black bread, vegetable stew from the things in their garden, and good herb teas cured much, and she was right. It certainly helped Martin with his stomach problems. Even under all this pressure, Luther described his wife as compliant, accommodating, and affable beyond anything I dared hope. 
he jokingly said, In domestic affairs, I defer to Katie. Otherwise, I'm led by the Holy Spirit. Katerina curbed Luther's reckless side, begging him to stay home instead of undertaking dangerous journeys. She also curbed his generosity a bit and appealed to him to think of his family before letting money slip through his fingers. She took a lively interest in her husband's affairs and was not reticent about advising him. That occasionally rankled Luther, who referred to her as my Lord Katie. But on the whole, domestic life was sweet in the Luther household. They fell in love with each other. Katie's work freed the reformer to write, teach, travel, and preach an average of 150 times a year. That's a lot. Katerina's great contribution to the Reformation was behind the scenes, supporting and challenging her husband and caring for her family. She provided a new example of what it meant to be a woman dedicated to God, not cloistered in a convent, but unselfishly serving her family and the church. Luther died in 1546 and Katerina two years later. Her last words, I will stick to Christ as a burr on a top coat. And that's not a top coat. I couldn't find anything like that. That's a pair of jeans, but you get the idea. Burr's stick. She said, I will stick to Christ as a burr on a top coat. Thus she ended her extraordinary life, determined and depending on Christ alone. Our second lady this morning is Marie Durand. The Durand family were French Huguenots. Huguenots were Protestants who lived in the south and west of France. They followed the teachings of John Calvin. They were very sincere and very faithful. They were persecuted and were killed by the French soldiers, per their Catholic leadership, from the early 1500s till 1789 when they were finally given the freedom of worship. The Durands lived in the mountainous region of France in that home, that stone home. I thought it was amazing that it's still there. I think it's quite large and spacious for the 1700s. Eight-year-old Marie and her 19-year-old brother, Pierre, and their parents made up the Durand family. In the middle of the night, they often met with others for Huguenot church meetings where they would sing psalms, read from the Bible, and pray. During that time in France, freedom to worship was against the law. So was owning, and punishable by death, I might add, so was owning or reading a Bible in the French language. The king wanted all his subjects to go to Mass and bow down to the host. God's word was the heart of their life and the guide for faith and conduct, and they kept their family Bible hidden. It's shown out here on a table in their home, but they kept it hidden in a crevice between the stones in the wall. Her father had even etched, Praise be to God, in stone near the chimney before she was born. Huguenots had to have secret meetings in secret places. They met at night. They met in the woods. They sometimes met in homes. They met in caves. They met in remote wilderness locations. For if discovered, the king's soldiers, they called them dragoons, would kill you or take you off to prison, never to be seen again. They were also ordered to steal all your goods. This is a picture of the dragoons doing what they were known for. They were usually on horseback and armed. 
During a secret Huguenot church meeting one night, there was a loud crash at the door and the dragoons burst in. Pierre, her older brother, who was leading the service, grabbed Marie, put her on his back, and sprinted out the back door along with many others. Marie turned around and saw the soldiers grab her mother's hair. Her papa was pushed out the back door in the rush of people, but Marie never saw her mother again. Marie and Papa spent two weeks foraging for food and sleeping in abandoned barns as the soldiers stood watch at their home. But finally the soldiers left and the two returned home. But Marie never felt safe again. Since Pierre had chosen to be ordained as a Huguenot pastor, despite a royal decree that had been passed two years before, that decree stated that anyone who was ordained as a Huguenot pastor would be hunted down and put to death. That didn't matter to Pierre. God's calling was stronger. That mattered more. Her brother's faith in God had inspired Marie's faith. It drove her to seek God, to find him, and to hold on to him. Ten years later, her papa was arrested. The reason? He was the father of a Huguenot pastor. That's it. He was kept in jail until he was 92 years old. Marie married a Huguenot man 20 years her senior. While eating at their home one day, they were both arrested, simply because her brother was a Huguenot pastor. She was about 19 when they were both imprisoned. She was first taken to this place, the Chateau de Beauregard. Before long, she was sent to the Tower of Constance, a circular stone structure. As she walked closer, she prayed, Oh, Lord, give me strength, for I do not have the strength to bear this. Above the locked door are engraved the words, All hope abandon, ye who enter here. But a steely resolve rose up in her heart in answer to her prayer. No, you may imprison my body, but you can never have my heart. I will not yield my hope. I will resist. That's the tower. They entered her name on the roll, but they did not enter her married name, Marie Ceres. They entered Marie Durand, and she was glad. She wanted to be remembered for who she was and what she stood for, what her family stood for. She was a Huguenot, and she should be remembered. She spent the next 38 years in that tower. Two years after arriving, she received a letter from her sister-in-law, that her brother Pierre had been arrested and killed. But he went to his death singing. He never surrendered his faith. She determined not to either. The conditions were terrible. This painting is rather clear and pristine. It wasn't like that. They did not have enough food. When it rained, they were wet. When it was cold, they shivered. They slept on the cold stone floor. And I want to read a couple of paragraphs from the book about that. I am drowning. I wake up with my face pressed against the cold stone floor, water swirling around me. I gasp and take in a mouthful of putrid, foul-tasting water. Sputtering, I sit up, struggling to catch my breath. It's dark, so dark I cannot see my hand in front of my face. All I can feel is water seeping into my clothes, cold and slimy with refuse. Shuddering, I struggle to my feet. The water is almost to my ankles. Around me, I hear gasps and murmurs as the other women struggle awake. 
experiencing the same rude shock that I have. I hear the gush of water, and I realize that it is raining heavily outside. The Tower of Constance, where we are held, is a circular tower built of stone. There is a hole in the roof that lets in a small shaft of sunlight during the day. It also lets in rain, hail, sleet, and snow. There is a similar hole in the floor, which is for our refuse. Tonight, it has obviously been unable to cope with the downpour flooding in through the roof, and the water, tainted with waste, has backed up over the floor. Still, I am grateful for this hole in the floor, because it means that no matter how much water gushes into this wretched tower, it will eventually all sluggishly drain out again. We will not drown. We will only be miserable. At least we have that much to be grateful for. Misery is to be preferred over death. I grope to my right and my fingers find the window ledge. It is a small window, grimy and barred. But I sit here often on warm days and read my meager clutch of letters. It's here that I have stored the small wooden box that contains these precious missives. And I am grateful tonight that I did not read them before I fell asleep. Otherwise, they would have been on the floor beside me. Had they been drenched, I would not have been able to bear their loss. But they are safe. The only lifeline I have to the outside world is safe. I lean against the damp stone wall and gather my soggy shawl around my shoulders. I am too cold and wet to sleep, so I do what I always do when I am cornered with nowhere else to go. I dream. I rifle through the aging collection of memories filed neatly in my mind, and I pull them out, one after the other. It is these memories that keep me strong. It is by remembering that I am able to steal my resolve even in the worst of times. It is by remembering that I am able to resist. They also had no medical care there. Early in the mornings before the guards arrived, or while they were still sleeping, friends would slip in to the outside of the building and deliver mail, food, clothes, and sometimes blankets. Uh, Sometimes they would even bring portions of scriptures. And Marie was not idle. She cared for the weak and the elderly. She wrote letters to her friends, seeing if they could take them to, to the authorities to improve their conditions. Early in the mornings, the ladies would sing and pray. She would share the scriptures she had obtained and try to nurture the faith of her fellow prisoners. And in doing so, she preserved her own faith. At times, there were 30 or more women in the tower. The king's men would come in often and give them the opportunity to sign a recantation paper or to attend Mass. All they had to do was say, I recant, and then attend Mass. And after being broken down physically, most would recant. But Marie would never recant, as she said, They cannot have us. They can wear us down and treat us like animals, but they cannot tear away our hope. She often thought of her favorite psalm and would recite the words, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. And she considered God her strong tower, not that prison they were in. As long as I have Christ, I have everything I will ever need. He is the rock that is higher than the roiling emotions that churn within me and the wretched conditions that plague us in this tower. Often she would go to the refuse hole in the center of the room, and with her sharp writing nib, she would begin to scratch out a single word on the rim. It was painstaking work, but over the years, a single word was formed, scraped into the stone by the sheer force of will. One word, resist, 
Now, it looks like register to you, but that's French. And that, pronounce that, Bernard? Resiste. You got it. That means resist. (laughs) Her inscriptions can still be seen etched in the stone of the tower today. She was broken in health, but unbroken in spirit. And I want to read you something else that was written of her and her uh, another friend. Have you thought about how you will respond? Marie's eyes flew open at a whisper in her ear. It was Pierre, that her, it's her brother's mother-in-law, Isabeau. Isabeau had been imprisoned in the tower shortly after Marie had arrived. They had formed an alliance of sorts, though Isabeau had not been a fan of her brother. Marie shook her head. I will not yield, she said simply, looking into Isabeau's eyes. I will not let them break me. Isabeau was quiet as she contemplated what Maria said. You remember the inscription on the door, what you see when you first come here? Marie nodded. All hope abandoned ye who entered here. Well, if there's no hope here, then why would you not want to accept the offer to leave? To find Matthew, that was her husband, and your father. They might still be alive. The state does not decide when and where we have hope, Mama Isabeau, she said, shaking her hair and furrowing her brow. I will not recant my faith in exchange for freedom. I won't do it. Why not? Because my faith cannot be sold so cheaply. You consider your freedom worthless? Marie shook her head in exasperation. No, but I value my faith in God more than I do my freedom. Being free of imprisonment alone cannot give me hope, Mama Isabeau. My faith in God can. Even in the confines of this wretched tower, I will not exchange that for anything. There was a long pause before she continued. When they brought me here, I could have recanted. I could have denied my faith and my brother. But I choose not to, because I know who I have believed. The most valuable thing I have in this world is my faith in God, and I will not barter that. So you would die in this tower, an old maid? I would if that was my only choice. Why won't you choose freedom, child? Because we aren't free, Marie cried. How can you talk about freedom when the king dictates what you can and cannot believe? There is no freedom in a country where your conscience is governed by the state, where it is bought and sold for the price of a mass. I would rather be confined to this tower and free in my soul than find myself walking outside this tower and chained to the dictates of the state. My conscience belongs to God, and I choose freedom over all else. I meant to have that up there when I read that. She was not for sale, as you can tell. She was imprisoned for 38 years before she was released in 1768, and she lived another eight years and died in 1776. If you're an American, that should mean something to you. The Huguenot cross was to honor the Huguenots, such as Marie and Pierre Durand, but there's so many more whose names we will never know, but fortunately they're recorded in the books of heaven. There's a plaque on the side of their home, and it reads, In the memory of Pastor Pierre Durand, condemned to death and executed in Montpelier. It shows there he was 32 years old when he died. And of his sister, Marie Durand, prisoner for 38 years in the Tower of Constance. And his quote was, If my Savior calls me to seal his holy gospel with my blood, his will is perfect. P. 
Pierre Durand. And her comment, resist Marie Durand. France had opened her own veins, spilt her best blood when she drained herself of her Huguenots. And everywhere in every country that would receive them, this amazing strain acted as a yeast. In other words, France destroyed their own cream of the crop. But wherever it is, the cream always rises to the top. They were a blessing to all around them. Huguenot settlers emigrated to the American colonies directly from France and indirectly sometimes from other Protestant countries of Europe because they also went to the Netherlands, to England, and this is a picture showing them, a a drawing picturing them arriving in Dover, in Germany and Switzerland. Some of the effects that they had on the world. You heard of Swiss watches? That's the top of the line. Many of the French craftsmen, the Huguenots, escaped to Switzerland, including many watchmakers. The Swiss goldsmiths partnered with the French Huguenot watchmakers, and they reinvented watchmaking. It was the Huguenots who raised the level of Swiss watchmaking to its levels now. And the Huguenots settled all along the eastern coast of North America. They seemed to show a preference for Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and South Carolina. And just as France suffered a notable loss through the immigration of these intelligent, capable people, the American colonies gained. Now, I don't see if, know if you can read it on the bottom over there on the right. It's a copy of a book cover. It's titled Huguenot Heroes in America, How Huguenot Persecution in France Built a Better America. Those colonists became farmers, laborers, ministers, soldiers, sailors, and people who engaged in government. The Huguenots supplied the colonies with excellent physicians and expert artisans and craftsmen. For example, that man is Irene Dupont, or we know it as Dupont, the company. He brought his expertise for making gunpowder that he had learned from the eminent chemist Lavoisier. And here's another one for you. Apollo Rivois, a goldsmith, was the father of this man. He, now, once he got to America, he changed the pronunciation and spelling of his last name slightly. You know him as Paul Revere, no longer Rivois, master silversmith and renowned patriot, and Huguenot. And this one. George Washington himself was the grandson of a Huguenot on his mother's side. The Huguenots adapted themselves readily to the New World. Their descendants increased rapidly and spread quickly. Today, people of Huguenot origin are found in all parts of our country. And does anybody in here know that they might have Huguenot um, ancestors? Yeah. (laughs) You never know. Anyway, I just pray that we may be as faithful and helpful in God's cause as Katerina Von Bora and Marie Durand were. Bow your heads, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the freedoms that we have still, at least for a while, in this country. And we pray that we may help your cause in whatever way you have gifted each one of us. We thank you for the blessings you have provided And we just pray that you will direct our paths this week. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.